Well, good morning. My name is Sam Caston Smith. It's good to be with you again. As Ryan said, I've been, this is actually marks the first week uh, serving as headmaster. Contract started July 1st, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, Tom and Matt are both on vacation, and they've asked me to come in and continue along in John. And the passage that we're going to be in today, if you have your Bibles, is John 13, beginning at verse 31. And this is the famous passage where Jesus is going to say the famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we hear those words and we've processed those words and we've heard them a million times and they might have started to fall flat to our hearts and minds. But those words are amazingly good news for us. You know, with everybody out on vacation, I was talking with my wife and she loves this story, but when I was a young boy, my dad was Clark W. Griswold. Like he was the guy that when we went on vacation, wanted to go to like every spot and see the biggest ball of yarn and do all that. And our vacations were always insane. Well, back in 1986, when I was seven or eight years old, we decide, my dad decides that we're going to do a vacation loop of the state of Florida, go down through the Keys, go up the West Coast and visit all these different cities. Well, we go to the Keys and on the way down to the Keys, this is just the kind of person my dad is. All the kids are graduated from college. There's no need to call protective services or anything. But my dad, when we were growing up, when we're on our way down to the, to the Keys, is decided with my brothers to start telling me, you know, this is right toward the end of the Cold War, that you better be careful in the Keys. Because Key West is just 90 miles away from Cuba, and they're the enemy. And if the Cubans find you, Sam, they will cut off your hands and feet. So as a seven or eight-year-old boy, the whole car ride down there, I'm going, got to stay away from the Cubans, got to stay away from the Cubans, got to stay, you know, and I don't even know as a seven or eight-year-old boy, what is it? I don't know what a Cuban is. I don't know what an Irish person is. I don't know anything. So we get down there to Key West, in everybody else's mind, this is like a ridiculous car conversation that has gone away. In my mind, I'm like, where are they? Like, the... For the entire vacation. So we are going down. My brothers who are certified in scuba diving go down to the waters with specific instructions. Do not lose your brother. Me. So they go out with their flag and their scuba gear and they go out and I can see over the waves. There's the flag. And before you know it, the rolling waves are coming in and there's no more flag. And I have no idea where they're, where they are. And it's a crowded beach filled with Cubans. And so I start panicking, and I am supposed to stay with all the stuff. No. I'm now running up and down the beach in the sand, terrified, looking for something that might be familiar. I'm looking out in the water. I'm looking for the flag. I'm looking for brothers. I'm looking for the hotel that anything would look familiar. And the more I panic, the more I'm looking and searching for something that might bring me some peace of mind. And I rush and rush and rush around. And before I know it, I'm at a place where I don't even recognize the buildings anymore. I don't know where the flag is. I don't know where our stuff is on the beach. So now I'm really panicked. I run down into the water. And as luck, Presbyterian, I know, but as luck would have it, I step on a sea urchin. All the spines go into the the bottom of my heel. Come back. And I mean, it hurt. 
But it hurt a lot worse when I got out of the water and started running on the sand and they were being driven further in, in my panic. And I get, but I'm panicked because I need to find someone quick. I get to a pier, and this is pretty, pretty hilarious. I run down to the end of the pier, and I'm in total tears. Devastated seven, eight-year-old boy, and probably the nicest man in the world comes up to me and says, are you okay, son? Do you need help? And in my mind, I hear, I'm Cuban, and I'm cutting off your hands and feet. (laughs) So I'm off of the pier, into the water, swim to the shore, and I get up. I'm just totally devastated, you know, doing this number. And all of a sudden, as I'm walking in the beach, in the distance, I see my oldest brother, Mike. And I run to him as fast as I can, and I hug him. And it's salvation at that moment. And we do that. We all do that. We're given instructions of a place to stay where it's safe. And when the first moment of crisis or fear comes, we run. And we want to find some place of security. And what usually ends up happening when we do things in our own strength when we try to secure our own refuge for ourselves, what usually ends up happening is that we step on the spiritual sea urchins and we get even more lost and in even more unfamiliar territory and things get more frightening. And the good news is that much like my older brother Mike, except much better news, is that Christ has come looking for us and he's found us. And he's called us to himself and he's given us sanctuary and security and all the things that we cannot find in this world on our own. You know, we are creatures of comfort. We're creatures of security. We need things to be safe. And no matter who you are, it's true of all of us. Last night, my, my, I have a two-year-old boy, Jacob. I'm terrified for Bethany, but he's coming. Well, he's super sweet. And so he's been sleeping in this crib that's got, you know, the walls and it's got the bars and everything else. And we decided last night, you know, he's a big boy. So we deconstructed the crib and we built this little bed, a big boy bed, and we put it up against the wall on the other side of the room. And so last night, it's a big production. You get to sleep in the big boy bed tonight. And he's big boy bed, big boy bed. And, you know, he's all excited about it. And we take him and we lay him down in the big boy bed. And I go back and I'm working on PowerPoint and trying to finish up my sermon. And Laura comes up to me before she goes to bed. And she goes, come here, come here. And I walk in and I open the door to his room and I look. And this is the big boy bed. And over here is where the crib had been. He's laying on the carpet where the crib was. He misses his crib. He misses that security. So it's like, oh, you know, pick him up. I lay him in his bed. We sing a song that we sing to him when he goes to bed. And then I leave the room. This morning, he's in the same carpet spot where his crib was. That's human nature. I don't care if you're two. I don't care if you're 80. We want security. And when things come our way that knock us out of our comfort zone, we want to run. And the message here today is this. You have security. You have a sanctuary in Christ who has come to rescue you. 
and you have no need to run anymore. You have no need to run from your circumstances. You have no need to run from your fears. You have no need to run from anything because He alone is your sanctuary. And He alone provides you glory. And here's where your glory is found. And this is what this passage is going to outline. Your glory is found in selflessness. Your glory is found in surrender. And your glory is found in Christ alone. There is no other place for this. So when we jump into John 31, the back one, the place that we have just come through, Jesus has come in, he's had his triumphal entry. He's just had his last supper. When he came into Jerusalem, everybody is shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. It's a messianic thing that you would, you would shout to somebody. Hosanna, son of David, they're all laying palm fronds on the ground saying, you are the Messiah, and they're all rejoicing. And less than a week, all the fanfare is gone. He's alienated with his teachings. He's alienated just about everybody in the city. And the same people who are yelling, Hosanna, son of David, are going to be the people yelling, crucify him. And yet, he goes to the Last Supper, which is right where we're coming at the end to, at the end of. And he washes all of his disciples' feet, even Judas. And he washes the disciples' feet. He points out to them that one of them is going to betray him. He reveals that it's Judas. And then he says, go and do it quickly. And now everything is on countdown. Everything is on countdown. He knows that Judas is left. He knows that Judas is on his way to the priest. He knows that at any moment, within hours, soldiers are going to come across the ravine, coming out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. They are going to arrest him. And the train of suffering is now launched on those tracks. He knows it. And as soon as Judas leaves, what does he say? When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. If you study closely in the book of John, that's a huge statement. The whole book of John has this theme running through it. And it's when is the hour of the Messiah's glory coming? Because everybody's expecting the kingdom of God to break out in the world and this wonderful place where death is overthrown and everything is good and there's no more crying and pain. Everybody's waiting for it. When is the kingdom of God coming? And right at the beginning of Jesus' suffering, he says, now. What? Now is the Son of Man glorified. And he's picking up on this conversation about timing that's been going on throughout the book of John. For example, in John 2, 4, when Mary says, hey, maybe we should turn this water into wine, what does Jesus say? My hour has not yet come. Or when the Jews confront him and they try to seize him, Scripture says they cannot do it. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And in the next chapter, after he's teaching in the temple courts and they want to arrest him and they want to kill him, they cannot because his hour had not yet come. And yet when he comes into the city of Jerusalem for his triumphal entry, the first words spoken... The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When everybody hears those words, they're treating him like a king. The palm fronds are going down. This is it. The kingdom of God is coming and it's here. Hooray, hallelujah. 
And Jesus is not talking about that. He's saying, my glory is coming and suffering. And now, now that Judas has left the building, he says this. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Are you picking up on maybe a theme that he's after? Here's the beginning of all of his suffering. The train is on the tracks. Jesus knows the torches and the soldiers are coming. He knows that within 24 hours, his back is going to be mutilated by Romans who are scourging him. His face is going to be beaten to a pulp with sticks and rods. His head is going to be bloodied by the crown of thorns. His hands and his feet are going to be nailed through. He's going to be mocked and spat upon and everything about what he's about to go through has nothing to do with glory, so we think. Because in our minds, glory has nothing to do with suffering. And what Jesus is showing us here in this passage, glory has everything to do with suffering. This is all about His glory. Five times, glorified, 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 glorified. This is all about Him. And what I want you to realize right out of the gates, your glory is in selflessness. So next, He says to them and gives them some really bad news, seemingly. He says, okay, the hour of my glory has come. But I got here's some news for you. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, and then he drops a bombshell. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I am going, you cannot come. If you're one of the disciples who has walked along with Jesus for any length of time, This news, this statement hits you at your very core. Why? Because just a little while before this, when Jesus is talking with the religious leaders and the people who he is telling, you have no place in the kingdom of God, what does he say to them? Jesus told the Jews, if you knew me, pay attention to this. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Remember Tom's sermons about this. You'll look like your father. You would know my father also. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And where I am going, you cannot come. Sound familiar? Now the disciples are hearing these same words. Oof. What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean? Pay attention to these words. He says... You don't know the Father, so you will die in your sin. And you can't come with me where I'm going to the Jews. But he says to his disciples, little children, you do know the Father. You are his children, but still you cannot come with me where I'm going. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? Where is he going? He's going to the road of suffering. Next slide. And they can't come. Why? Because Christ is not yet in them. 
in a powerful way. When Christ goes to the cross, he divests himself of his righteousness and he clothes us in it. He goes to the cross and He takes all of our sin, all of our shame, all of the things that we deserve, and He takes them upon Himself, clothes us in righteousness. And where the rest of John 14 goes after today's passage is this. Jesus says, I'm going to send a helper. The Spirit is going to come inside of you. And you can't come yet because if you went where I was going, you would be totally consumed. I have to go there first. I'm going to forge a way for you. And the Spirit is going to come. And the Spirit is going to dwell inside of you. And then you'll be able to follow me. And he says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now there's something incredibly sweet about this. He tells the Jews, you don't know the Father, you can't come where I'm going. Then he looks at his disciples and says, my children, you can't come where I'm going. But he says, I will not leave you as orphans, you have a Father. And you don't have to come, I'm coming to you. That's the heart of our Lord. And here's the deal. When Christ goes to the cross... He goes to the cross carrying all of our afflictions. He goes and he conquers sin and he conquers death and he enables you to become a purified temple where sin no longer dwells so that the Spirit can dwell in you. And there is a powerful message of what that means to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And one of my favorite examples of this goes all the way back to the burning bush. And this is a bit of a, of a rabbit trail, but hang with me. When Moses is out in the wilderness and he's tending as a shepherd, he's amazed by this sight. And he looks over and he sees a bush. Acts chapter 7 tells us it's a thorn bush. And he's amazed because there, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And God is preaching the gospel to Moses in this image. What is a thorn bush? Think about this. When God comes to Moses, he could have come to him in any conceivable way. And if you're going to come in a plant, this is the God of the universe. Surely he's going to come in style, right? He's going to come in a redwood or a cedar tree or an oak or a Lebanon. No, he comes in a thorn bush. And why a thorn bush? The one physical manifestation of the fall, the one thing that is the emblem of the curse of sin given to Adam in the garden, thorns and thistles, it will grow for you. God comes and dwells in the middle of the curse of man. And when the presence of God is in the midst of that, it cannot be consumed. The fires cannot overwhelm it. And that is good news for us. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And your life is riddled with sin. And yet the fires of judgment cannot overtake you. Everybody in this room, everybody in this room is plagued with the furnace of affliction. What Christ wants us to see is in the middle of all of our affliction, in the middle of all of our pain, 
He dwells in us. He makes us 10 feet tall and bulletproof. He makes us more than a conqueror so that no matter what comes your way, you have victory. If it's disease, if it's death, if it's financial ruin, if it's hardships in the family, there is nothing that can overtake you because neither death nor life, nor angels or demons, riches or poverty, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ, from the love of God in Christ, and He dwells in you. And now you're empowered. Now, if the Spirit is in you, then you genuinely can come after Him. But before that, we are too weak. We would be consumed in a moment. So back up to Jesus at the Lord's Supper. And what does He say to them? He's just talked about... Now, this is just awesome. I love the character of our Lord. He's just amazing. He's just talked to them about... I'm going to be glorified, and I'm going to be glorified in the Father, and the Father's going to be glorified in me, and you're thinking, okay, Jesus and God are both going to be glorified. This is good, okay. And then when he goes to give the application for this, where's his concern? He's totally selfless. Right after this, he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is going to go, and it's it's like I, I always envision it this way, that when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's falling onto his face and he's sweating like drops of blood and he's overwhelmed with this amazing reality of what he's about to face, he is standing before this figurative dam that is just massive. And all of my sins are on the other side of that. And all the wrath for my sins are on the other side of that. All the wrath for all of your sins are on the other side of that. All the wrath for all the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future, are on the other side of this dam. And Jesus is now sitting at the foot of this, saying to God, Lord, please, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I do not want this thing to fall on me. But not my will. Your will be done. In the middle of His glory... He attains glory by looking to the will of the Father. And in the middle of his glory, in the middle of his suffering, in the middle of knowing that any moment he is going to be forsaken by his Father, the Father will turn his face away. He's going to be forsaken and betrayed by all of his friends. He is going to be left all alone. Nobody comes with him. Everything for him is tragic and terrible. And Jesus gives one application and he says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I want you to stop for a moment and think. What does it mean about the character of God that as he's about to endure the greatest suffering any man has ever known, his concern is for you. His concern is for the person in the seat next to you. And you read this and you think, a new commandment? What's it? This isn't new. Lo- I mean, love, that's been around for a long time. Like, go to Leviticus, the second greatest commandment. What does he say? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Or the golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated. Like, this isn't new. Oh, yes, it is. This commandment 
is such a greater standard. This is what we're called to. The trick behind this commandment, what's different, is he says, love one another as I have loved you. What does that mean? That means that he doesn't just call us to love others as we want to be loved. He calls us to love others as he's loved us. What does that mean? That means that when we love others, it's going to cost. It means that when we love others, we're going to suffer. It means that when we love others, we are willing to lay down our lives and die for them. That's the new standard of love that Jesus leaves for his disciples. That's the kind of love that we're called to. Dying for one another. Sacrificing for one another. Being selfless. That's where our glory is. You know, Ryan and I went to Haiti several months back. One of the scariest parts about going on that trip, though, when they, when they were telling us, okay, this is what the rules are. You cannot bring cell phones. You cannot do this, that, and the other. We're up in the mountains. There's no satellites. There's no signal anyway. So the scariest part about that whole thing is you have no way of contacting your family. Julie, at this point, is really pregnant with Jet, due in a few weeks. My wife has two kids running around, so it's like anything can happen. And there's one sat phone that's like, you know, bigger than my car that we're relying on for any kind of a news. And I would suppose that phone call, I'd left my wife for six days, couldn't be there to hold her, to hug her, to hold her hand, and I get a phone call at the very beginning of that trip, and somebody says, Sam, I hate to tell you this, but your entire house burned down in the middle of the night. Laura and the boys are okay. They escaped, but only with the clothes on their back. Their food is gone. Their clothes are gone. Their medicine is gone. The cars and keys, credit cards, cash, everything is gone. They have nothing. And the phone hung up. And I spent the next six days thinking to myself, man, I hope they're doing okay. I can't leave. I'm stuck up here in the mountains until the the taxi gets back. There's nothing I can do. Now, suppose I got on the plane six days later and I came home and I pulled up to my house and I noticed that my wife was wearing her nightie and my kids were wearing their pajamas and they were sitting out in front of the house emaciated. They hadn't had anything to eat. They had nothing to wear, no car to get to work. Do you know how devastating that would be for me? To know that there are so many people who claim to love me, and yet when I leave my bride and my bride is in the moment of her greatest need, nobody comes and cares for her. Flip that around. Suppose I come back and I find that Ryan has taken my wife in and he's gone out and he's bought new clothes for them and he's given them shelter and he has fed them and he has given them transportation and he's cared for them and comforted them and loved them. And when I get back, I hear that. Ryan will have shown greater love for me by showing that kind of love for my bride than if he'd have done that for me. And when Jesus is going and preparing to leave and he's preparing to go to his cross and he knows he's not going to be there in the flesh anymore, 
This is my commandment. This, he's got the heart of a husband for us. He loves you beyond your wildest imagination to where when he is going to the moment of his suffering, his concern is not on, oh, I'm about to face the wrath of God for all of mankind. It's, I hope my bride is taken care of. That's his character. That's how amazing he is. But glory is not found in just selflessness. It's found in surrender too. And we start this next verse with Peter, who is famous for foot and mouth disease, piping up and being like, I'll fix it. So he asked Jesus the question, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. That is a big, huge statement. Again, if you're one of Christ's apostles, disciples, to hear Christ say, you cannot follow me, is huge. When Peter first comes on board as an apostle of Christ, what is it that Jesus says? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. When he gets into the I am statements, he's going to say this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When he says that he is the the good shepherd, he says this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Or when he talks about what it means to be a disciple, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And now here's the moment. This is the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry. And what is he telling Peter? He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. What? But you will follow afterward. We hear that opening statement, and here's he's speaking about suffering, so it's like, you cannot follow me. And most of us are like, deal. What Jesus is saying here is, you can't follow me now. You can't withstand the justice of God. I'm going to settle that account. And when my spirit dwells in you, and you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, then I'm going to call you to follow me. Well, Peter pipes up because he knows better, right? Peter pipes up and says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus, you can almost just, I just picture Jesus being like, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Peter's saying, oh no, where you're going, I can go. And Jesus is basically responding, Peter, you won't make it through the night. And he doesn't. And Jesus is being escorted. The troops come. They grab with their torches. They take Jesus. They take him and Peter's asked, are you, were you with him? You've got one of those Galilean accents. No, I don't know the man. He's asked again, were you with him? No, I don't know the man. They ask him again. He throws a tantrum. I do not know the man. And right at that moment, the rooster crows and Luke tells us that Jesus' eyes catch Peter's. Can you imagine that moment? Betraying Christ, denying him right in the moment of his greatest need. The rooster crows and everything in your soul just goes, Ugh, and then he looks at you because you aren't following him. 
in his moment of greatest need. And here's the truth. We're all Peter's. There are a million different ways in our life where we don't follow him and Christ peers into our soul. But he does not forsake us. Peter leaves this place and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. But three days later, Christ is going to be raised from the dead. And he meets Peter on the shores of Galilee. And he's going to restore him. And he does this very, it's really beautiful. He says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. He asked him again, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He says it again, Lord, Peter, do you love me? And Peter gets it. Just as he had three opportunities to affirm his friendship with Jesus and deny Jesus three times, now Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And he restores him. And he rebuilds Peter into this amazing apostle who will do incredible things for the church. But before he's done, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then Jesus reveals the punchline, right? It says this. He said this to show what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. And after saying this, now he says, follow me. This is heavy. Here you are at the Last Supper table, and Jesus is saying, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me afterward. Well, this is afterward. And now Jesus is saying, Peter, you too are going to have to carry a cross. And Peter, sure, sure, he would be. He's crucified upside down because he didn't figure crucifixion like his Lord, like he deserved that. So he's crucified upside down, and surely he follows Jesus. And glory is to be found in Christ alone. So Christ is calling us on this mission where we're to be selfless, where we're to to love others as he has loved. We're called to surrender. We cannot follow after him. Our only hope is in him. We don't have the strength to walk on his path. And now we get to this and they start talking about how in the world am I to get to glory? How am I to get to the kingdom of God? So Jesus starts off and he says, "Let let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That is his heart. He wants you with him. And then he says something that they don't get. And you know the way where I'm going. And just like Tom has been preaching since the beginning of this series in the book of John, all this stuff is drawing up things that they should have realized about the Old Testament. That the entirety of the Old Testament is preaching and singing about Christ and our redemption. And when he says, you know the way where I'm going, he has expected them to pick up on some things. Because the way in Scripture is a big, big deal. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, 
When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God stations an angel, a cherubim, to guard the way back to the tree of life and to paradise. When he leads Israel out of Egypt with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, it says that he gave them the pillar of fire and cloud to lead them on the way out. When Joshua and the Ark of the Covenant are going to then lead them into the promised land, it says that the Ark went before them so that they would know the way. When the prophets of the Old Testament are telling you, here comes a Messiah, one who is going to deliver you, one that's going to bring about the kingdom of God, what do they say about these prophets? Isaiah and Malachi say that there's going to be a voice in the wilderness who's going to come and he is going to say, prepare the way of the Lord. And then it's followed by salvation. So let me give you one example of how this looks. And it's Joshua and the Jordan. Thomas pipes up at this point and he's going to say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? It was revealed already. But they, like we would have, we, we miss it because we treat the Scriptures like they're a millimeter deep. When Joshua takes the Israelites and he leads them into the kingdom of God, he does it at a place called Beth Abara. In Hebrew, it literally means place of the crossing. And the Ark of the Covenant and Joshua and all the Israelites enter into the promised land and they have these Levitical priests who carry the Ark of, God, Ark of the Covenant, which is the dwelling place of God's glory. And they come up to the Jordan River at Beth Abara, And as soon as the priests' feet touch the water, the Jordan goes... And it parts, just like it did for Moses. And God announces, there it is. There is the promised land. Go get it. That's your home. Go get it. This is the way. So when John the Baptist is given the mission, prepare the way of the Lord, he's thinking, okay, the kingdom of God's coming back to Israel. Where's this going to happen? Bethabara, same place that happened for Joshua. So he goes there and he sits at Bethabara with his baptism ministry. And then he sees Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knows kingdom's coming. And he takes Jesus, and John is a Levite, and he takes Jesus, who is the dwelling place of God's glory in the flesh, and he takes him down into the Jordan. And the kingdom of God is at hand, right? This is what John is preaching. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Here it is. And he takes Jesus into the Jordan, and you just know in John's mind, he's waiting for the Jordan to go... And here it comes. And that's not what happens. The heavens part. And a dove descends as the Spirit. And God booms, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And if the parting of the Jordan was God's way of announcing, all right, boys, there's your home. There's the promised land. Go get it. This is the way. When John prepares the way by putting Jesus in the Jordan and the heavens part, here's God declaring, this is the way to the promised land. There he is. He is your hope. He is your citizenship papers into the kingdom of God. And He's it. He's the only one. So Jesus pipes up, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this verse, this passage, is used more than any other passage in Scripture to affirm the idea of absolutes. That there's only one way, that you can't just, whatever your opinion is, is your own truth. No, there's one way, period. And if you're like me and you're uncomfortable with the idea of talking about hell and the fact that anybody who's not in Christ is going there, be careful what you say. Because there's one way. One. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say, this is an abbreviated illustration, but let's say everybody in this room is diagnosed with some blood disorder that's fatal. You're all going to die within the day. But a doctor comes and he finds out that my four-year-old boy has antibodies in his bloodstream that will save everybody else, but I've got to kill my four-year-old and drain him of his blood to spare each and every one of you. Heavy. If I loved you enough to allow my son to die on behalf of you, what kind of a father would I be if at the end of that I have a dead son who's experienced massive pain and I say, oh, by the way, you could have taken ibuprofen. What a monster God would be if there was any other way. He's laid it all down. He has suffered immensely. He's the only hope. He is the only hero we have. There is no hope in any other thing. And foolish like we are, we want to find other ways and other truths and other sources of life. We I mean, it might not be a theological thing. If I said you could get to heaven by chasing after Allah, Well, that would offend us intellectually. But when you chase after all these other petty idols like they are your source of life, or after all these other petty ways that can never bring you security and will only strangle you more into your sin and hopelessness, that's just as bad. And we all do it. We all chase after a million different ways. And Christ in this statement, it is such good news, is saying, I am your sanctuary. I am your way. You can't follow him through that suffering, but he can enable you to follow after him with the spirit inside so that you can live entirely different. A life that's selfless, a life that's totally surrendered, that when suffering comes your way, you can walk into it knowing that God has ordained a good to come from it, knowing that in him you're safe. We want to find tons of other things. In the early church, this teaching became huge. Long before the church was called Christians or the church, They called themselves the people of the way. They found their hope in the way. He's it. Paul says he persecuted the way to death. The way was actually called the sect of Christianity. And here's the deal. In this day with all these sects, and I'm going to throw an application to you, 
Just because of the season we're in, in a million different ways, we follow after idols. We follow after finances. We follow after even marriages. If they're not centered in Christ, are idolatrous. Your children, if they're not invested in Christ, your love is not invested in Christ. It's idolatrous. Everything you do that's not centered upon God, even if it's a good thing, if it becomes an ultimate thing, it's idolatrous. He has to be the center of everything. And only then does life make sense truly. So in his world, he's got all these different peoples, except they're looking for a political kingdom. Well, in November of this year, we've got an event coming up. And people get really contentious, and they get really hot and bothered about elections. And Jesus calls us to the same reality. And I want to just walk you through a teaching that he gave to the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Herodians come, and they are the liberals of the day. They want high taxes because they want Herod to put everyone to work. So they want high taxes. They want big government. They're fine with foreign influences and all the immorality that's creeping into Israel. And people who are conservative would say, that sounds like Democrats. And then you've got the Pharisees over here who are super legalistic and they're concerned about traditions and they want to go back to the 1950s and they want everything to be good and everybody loves God and we're super patriotic and we love Israel and we're nationalistic, yay, yay, yay. And Rome is this imperial force intruding on us and we need to throw them out and they don't like other influences. They like their traditions and their culture and their heritage guilty. And they both come to Jesus to trap him. And the Herodians say, should we pay taxes or not? And this is good news because both sides hate him. The Herodians are hoping that Jesus is going to say, no, don't pay taxes. Because then the Herodians go to Herod and say, we've got a rebel, he's crucified. The Pharisees are hoping, he says, absolutely pay taxes. Because then the Pharisees can go to all the Israelites and be like, we got a, we got a sellout. He loves Rome more than Israel. And then all the people are going to hate him and walk away from him. And Jesus looks at the Herodians and does something unbelievably brilliant. He says, give me a coin. Give me a denarius. And you can see Caesar's image on the left-hand side. This would have been exactly what Jesus shows them. And he takes this denarius and he holds it up in front of them. And he says, whose image is on this? Caesar's. So he says to them, well, then give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and unto God's what is God's. And right after this, it says that they marveled at his brilliance and you're kind of left there going, really? I mean, pay taxes. That's basically what you get out of it. But the brilliance of what Jesus is saying is left unsaid. The coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. What then belongs to God? That which bears his image. You're not Herodians and Pharisees. You're not Republicans and Democrats. You're not sold out to the petty worldly causes that cause division. You, you stand for truth. And I encourage you to vote. But you are not a Republican or a Democrat. You are a Christocrat. And you love your neighbor as Christ loved us. Your kingdom, primary citizenship, is not here. You love this world because Christ loves it. 
And you want this world to conform to heaven because that's what he wants. But he is the way. You belong to him. You're safe in him. You have a God who has died for you, suffered for you, loves you, sings over you. Nothing this world has to offer should draw your heart away from him. Your glory is in selflessness because you recognize his value is greater than anything you could get for yourself. Your glory is surrender because there's nothing you bring to the table that's greater than what he promises you. Your glory is Christ alone.